The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Happy Thanksgiving, as Matt already said. Hey, before I get started, my name is Tyler. For those of you that don't know me, which is probably just a few of you if you're brand new, and uh, I just wanted to start this morning by giving honor where honor is due. Um, I've been at this church plant since it started, which is under three years now, just by a little bit. And uh, every morning I've come in at 6 or 6.30 through our different phases to, uh, to help set up. And this morning marked the first morning I haven't had to do that. And uh, I just, that may seem like a small thing for you, but for me it's huge. I still got up early. It's clockwork. But um. I just wanted to honor our production team, and specifically two guys, Lonnie Irvin, who most of you don't know, who's up back here, and then Muta, who's behind the soundboard. But our whole team really uh, is amazing. So I'm really grateful for them, and uh, it was just awesome to be able to just, as the worship pastor, come in and really be in the place where I'm just focused on preaching, which I haven't had that luxury any other time I've preached. So that's awesome. Hey, I got a haircut this week. Um, what do you think? Uh, so I go to a guy named uh, George, and he's got a shop on Magnolia. And typically, if you were to ask me how, when, when a barber asked me how I like my haircut, if I was going to give a really transparent, honest answer, uh, it would probably be, in silence, please. Um, small talk. I mean, it's not my spiritual gift, but I did my best with George on Wednesday. I sat down, and I said, George, how, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? And George said, I'm just going to be at home with my God. He's a Syrian, by the way, so he's got an ac- a very thick accent, which I won't try to imitate. You're welcome. But uh, he said, I'm going to be at home with my God, and I chuckled in awkwardness. <laughs> really? What? Wait, what? He said, I said, George, who's your God? And he says, I made him up. George, you made your God up? That's cool. What? what? You made him? Yes. I said, George, what's he like? He says, he's very nice to me. He never tells me that I've done anything wrong. He's a good hang. We just have a good time, and he, he's just nice to me. He's just a nice God. I, and I was feeling particularly feisty on Wednesday. So I, I said, George, you know, I am going to be with my God on Thanksgiving, too. He said, really? I said, yes, but um, I did not make my God up. He is uh, the first and the last, and his name is Jesus, and he died and rose again for my sins, proving that he's real and that he's God. And George looked back at me and said, I don't understand these words. I said, hmm. I said, you know, George, uh, Jesus rose again. There were actually 500 people, most church historians and the book of 1 Corinthians will tell us that he appeared to 500 people at one time. Again, George said, I don't understand these words. Now, here's the thing. A made-up God that never tells you you've done anything wrong uh, and is nice to you seems like a great idea uh, until... You're wronged by somebody, and you long to know that there's justice in the world until the phone call comes and you're in a moment of crisis and you know that you're sick and you need help. See, a made-up God is an impotent God. A made-up God is a God that can do nothing for you when you turn to it. And I asked George before I left, I said, George, is it okay if I pray for you? And he said, you can pray for me whenever you want. I said, well, I'm going to. I'm going to pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you, George. But here's the deal. We all in this church are here this morning under the name of Jesus, and the one purpose of this church is to lift that name up because it is the only name that can save. And in our text today, we are going to meet two people 
in a moment of crisis who need a real God that is potent, that is able to act. And we're going to see that in their desperation, they come to Jesus who is able to save. And that's the Jesus we come to this morning. So let's pray to him. Jesus, I thank you that we are gathered under your name and that in your name there is freedom. That in the name of Christ there is liberty and victory and we are gathered here as forgiven sinners washed in your blood. So now help us to sit under your word and receive it with gladness and not only be hearers but doers of your word. Even if that doing looks like nothing more than simply leaning in and believing who you are in faith this morning and allowing that truth to free us. It's in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're gonna be in Luke chapter eight, verses 40 through 56. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there and I'm gonna jump right in. Luke chapter eight, verse 40. Now Jesus, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. So here's the scene here. Jesus has just crossed over the Sea of Galilee and on his way, he spoke to a storm and stilled it. And then he gets to the other side and he meets a man who is possessed by a demon that speaks in plural about himself. He refers to himself as we. And in general, when you meet a demon, it's a bad day. But if you meet a demon that's talking about himself in plural, that's a really bad day. But Jesus has cast this demon out, sent it into a herd of pigs. It has run off a cliff and they have rejected Jesus because they hurt the enterprise in their city by destroying their flock, which is valuable. So Jesus is rejected by this and he comes back and word has spread about Jesus. People are like, he's calmed a storm. He's casting out demons. I want to meet him. So a crowd is gathered, and a crowd is waiting for Jesus upon his return. But within this crowd, Luke is going to highlight for us that there are two specific people that are there waiting and needing a miracle from Jesus. They are desperate, and Jesus is going to find these people in a crowd. Isn't it beautiful that we can know that even in a crowd, Jesus is able to feel and identify our individual needs, and those who are desperate for Jesus this morning will receive from him. Verse 41, then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So here we meet Jairus, the first character in our story. Here's what we know about Jairus. Jairus was, this is fairly obvious, a man, which means that he had power and privilege that were not afforded to women at this time. Luke goes out of his way in this text to give Jairus a name. And what Luke wants us to see here is that Jairus had a social identity. He was known, perhaps Luke knew Jairus because he was a ruler in the synagogue. So Luke may have very well known Jairus personally. Either way, Luke wants us to know that Jairus was known in the culture. Jairus, we're told, has a position of prestige and power. He's a leader in the synagogue. Now, here's the thing. Generally, at this time, religious leaders like Jairus were averse to Jesus. See, he was a threat to the kingdom they had, and he came preaching the kingdom of God, which they were not excited about. But we're going to see in our text that Jairus does not care at this moment. He is going to fall at the feet of Jesus. We know that Jairus was a man of wealth. See, our text says he had a home. So picture a middle, upper-class man, a man of means, two cars in the driveway, a season pass to Disney. This is Jairus. He's relatively comfortable and confident in his life. He's got his life tucked in. He's got some money in the 401k. He's doing just fine. But we also know that Jairus has a dying 12-year-old daughter. And for all the earthly status, security, and prestige that he had accumulated... 
Right now, he is undone. See, Jewish men like this, leaders in the synagogue, they, very, they, were, they were men of stature. They wore long robes. They never lost their dignity. But we see Jairus in this moment falling at Jesus' feet, losing all self-awareness and begging Jesus to heal his daughter. What Luke wants us to see right here is that all of Jairus' security and wealth and connections could not save him in this moment. They meant nothing This is a moment where he cannot stroke a check to solve his problems, where he cannot call the right connection or person in to solve his problems, where he cannot posture himself and lean upon his power to solve his problems. The only hope Jairus has in this moment is in the person of Jesus that is standing before him as he falls at his feet, I'm sure in tears, begging him to heal his precious girl. This is what Jairus shows us. This is what Luke wants us to know about Jairus. No amount of earthly security can protect us from the realities of suffering, loss, and ultimately death. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? See, the most powerful person in the world, if he hasn't trusted in Jesus, so the most powerful person in the world, let's just say Donald Trump. There's going to come a day where his health will fade. There's going to come a day where he breathes his final breath, and he will find out that if he has not Jesus... He has nothing at all. Ownership is an illusion. Security in earthly possessions is an illusion. And even Donald Trump will find that out. Please stop smiling about that. Verse 42. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So think Disneyland on Memorial Day here. There is like nowhere to turn, bumping into people left and right all over the place. My worst nightmare. And a woman was there, verse 43, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Here we meet our second person, the incurable bleeding woman. Here's what we know about her. Again, first off, very obvious. She's not a man. She's a woman. She's lived her whole life that way, and there are privileges and rights she's not been afforded. Secondly, we know that she's not given a name. And Luke wants us to see in this that she was an overlooked and lonely and unseen woman. Perhaps Luke didn't write her name down literally because he didn't know it and she's, um, she's on the margins of society, not known. Perhaps he did it intentionally so that we know and can see. This is just a woman. This is not somebody that's valued or seen in society. This is someone that's lived a life of invisibility. And here's why she has lived her life this way. Our text tells us that she is subject to bleeding. Subject to bleeding. That is a polite way of saying she has an uncontrollable menstrual flow for 12 years. This meant not only that she was sick and in pain and unable to have children, but also, most importantly, this meant that she was ceremonially unclean according to the Mosaic law. This was established in Leviticus 15, and it meant that she was not allowed to touch or be touched. She could not go to public worship in the synagogue, and she really shouldn't exist in crowds at all. Because of her bleeding, she is cast to the outside. She is on the margin. She is unknown, and she is told and starting to believe that she's unworthy. And here's the thing. She's been this way for 12 years. That is a long time. 
If I think back 12 years, I was a 21-year-old, and I was in college, and I had a lot to learn. A lot has happened in my life in 12 years. And I can imagine living in this reality for 12 years, you start to believe a lot of things about yourself that are untrue. I can imagine for the first few years as she's spending all of her money trying to get made well, which is another thing we know about her. We know that this woman had no wealth because the account and Mark will tell us she has spent all of her money on doctors trying to be made well and she's incurable and Luke is a physician so he knows this as he writes it. But I can imagine for 12 years, I begin, if I'm, if I'm cast to the outside, if I'm unknown, if we are cast out, I fight it for a few years. I have hope. Then for the second four or five years, I start to fade. And then by the end, after 12 years, I am my sickness. That's all I'm known by. That's all I'm good for. That's all people think of me. That's all I think of myself. I am just the bleeding woman and I have no other identity. See, this woman's sickness had become her identity. We also know that she had no position. Jairus ruled in the synagogue, but she literally couldn't even get into worship. And as I just said, we know she has no wealth. The bleeding woman shows us this. No amount of suffering, past sin, shame, or sickness can keep you from the resurrecting tender mercies of Jesus when you reach out to him in faith. None. Whereas Jairus shows us no one is too good or too powerful to need Jesus desperately, this bleeding woman shows us that no one is too unworthy, too sinful, too shameful, too unwanted, or too lost to have Jesus be available to them when they reach out to them in the desperation of faith. See, we serve a God who delights to reach out to those who are hurting, who lives to pour his blessing and his mercy out on people who are desperate for him. That's the beat of his heart. Are you desperate for Jesus this morning? Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. The text says she came up behind him. I believe, as I studied, I, I thought of two reasons why I think she probably came up behind him. Number one, we already established, because she's ceremonially, un ceremonially unclean. So literally, to touch Jesus, she's breaking the law. She is breaking the law if she touches Jesus. And she could not only then be the, the bleeding woman, but the woman who was caught in public in a crime touching a man. So she has to hide. So you can literally picture her sneaking up behind Jesus, just trying to get a touch, thinking to herself, if I can just touch him, I'll be made well. Like a starving child tries to steal a loaf of bread. She is trying to sneak her miracle out of Jesus. I think the second reason goes more for her heart, why she tried to sneak this miracle or come up behind him. I believe that her isolation and invisibility had become her only remaining refuge from the pain and shame of the identity she had cast upon herself as the bleeding woman. She has chosen to find refuge in hiding. Like a criminal who is more comfortable in his jail cell than back out in society, she is living in functional dysfunction. And that functional dysfunction has become her comfort and her refuge. Like a couple who has no life in their marriage learns to just exist together. That's functional dysfunction. It functions, but it's dysfunctional. It functions, but it does not make for thriving. 
like a man who can't stand his job and it deals with the stress by coming home to four beers every night and that's just the way he does it. It's functional dysfunction. And Jesus sees this functional dysfunction in her being the good, all-knowing Savior. And he's not just going to go for healing her body, but he's going to say, leave that stronghold, come out of it. But healing in that way will require her to get uncomfortable. And Jesus in his mercy is gonna pull her in that direction. And text says she comes up and touches the edge of his cloak. Most commentators will agree that edge isn't the best translation here. They will actually say that what she touched was a tassel that hung off his robe called a zizit, which I think is an awesome word. It's got lots of Zs. It's a zizit, and it was established in Numbers 15, and it actually represented the law. And, and what she did is not just touch it, but literally yank on it. So like stepping on a dress, Jesus likely felt a tug on his robe. And the text says that immediately her bleeding stopped. What power resides in Jesus? For 12 years, she has spent every dime she has. She has seen every doctor she could find. She has sat in desperation and nothing has worked. Nothing has healed. Nothing has come through. And a mere touch of the edge of Jesus's garment in faith and immediately she's made well. See, our God is not short on power. We serve a mighty God. Those who come to him in desperate faith and cling to him will find that he is willing and able to save. Jesus is a mighty God. He is not a God of poverty. He is a God of abundance for those who come in faith to him. But here's the thing. It was not her desperation that saved her. She had been desperate for 12 years, increasingly so. What saved her is that for a brief, fleeting, important moment, she directed all of that desperation in faith towards the one God who was able to save her, Jesus Christ. The desperation and faith was directed towards a potent object which was able to act on her behalf. Church, it is not the strength of our faith. I just gotta believe more. I gotta have more faith and I'll get what I want. It is the simple act of putting whatever faith you have in the one God who is strong enough and holy enough and good enough and real enough to act on your behalf, Jesus Christ. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object. What are you directing your faith towards this morning? Verse 45 This is where it gets good. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Now, question here. Does Jesus really not know who touched him? Like, is he like, oh, I felt, hey, who touched, who who touched, is that you? Who touched me? No. Jesus is sovereign. So if I walk into my living room and I see candy wrappers strewn about the floor and Cheerios in the carpet and and chocolate on the walls, and the cupboard door opened, which is a common scene. Um, And I see Graceland sitting on the carpet covered in chocolate, and I walk in and I say, hey, Graceland, baby girl, who got into the pantry? Am I asking Graceland because I don't know who got into the pantry? Graceland would likely respond with, baby sissy did it. Uh, Graceland, she's 10 months old, she can't walk. Ah, candy rapture. No, not a candy rapture, baby girl. Nice try, I'm impressed. 
No, I'm asking Graceland who got into the pantry because I'm using this moment as a teaching moment. I'm giving her a chance to enter in. I'm giving her a chance to admit what she's done. I'm giving her a chance to repent and respond and learn and grow from it so that next time she doesn't hopefully do it. And Jesus isn't asking her because he doesn't know. He's asking her because he wants to give her a chance to enter in. But what is it Jesus sees in her? What is it that he's going after? See, I believe Jesus saw that she had needs in her heart that far surpassed the needs of her body. And he's going after her to heal those. See, if he had left her in this moment and just kept walking, oh, power went out, okay, I'm just gonna keep going. This woman who received this miracle is healed physically, but her identity has not changed. She's just the woman who stole a miracle from Jesus. She's gotta keep hiding it, and she's not had her identity rewired. She's gonna keep to the margins of society and be the bleeding woman in her heart, though she's no longer the bleeding woman in her body. So Jesus is not gonna let that happen. He loves her too much. He's going to rewire her identity and give her new hope and set her free. Verse 45, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. So you can picture this moment. I love this moment because it reveals a dynamic between Jesus and his disciples that's very encouraging to me because they just totally didn't get it. And as a pastor, I'm like, thank you, because so often I don't. But you can picture them in this moment. Uh, guys, what is up with Jesus? Like, of course, everyone's touching him. Everyone wants a crowd. Everyone's bumping against him. Who's going to tell him? And Peter was never, never, never unwilling to fill silence with stupidity. <laughs> and so Peter speaks up. Uh, master, we are in a very big crowd. Everyone's touching you. And I can picture Jesus. Peter, thank you for your insights. These are people, and they are bumping into me. You are so wise, Peter. I'll use, to build, use you to build my church, grace upon grace. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. It's as if in this moment, Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, many people are touching me, but this touch was different. You see, many people touch Jesus casually. Many people come into a crowd and come around Jesus, curious about what's going on, I'll at least check it out, and they get a casual touch. But few people touch Jesus desperately and intentionally. See, coming to church, joining a crowd, being a part of a crowd is just not enough. Hearing a sermon and singing a few songs will not give you an experience of Jesus that is radical and transformational and powerful. The only thing that can do that is when you experience the tender mercy of Jesus personally, daily, through time in his word, through time in his prayer, through Christian fellowship with brothers and sisters, you begin to see and experience Jesus as a real, living, active savior with power to save, with power to transform your sinful heart, with power to make you more like him. But it does not happen from being in a crowd. There are things that you are powerless to do without Jesus. Many, many, many. Things like overcoming temptation and changing habitual sin. That is the power of Jesus. That is a miracle. Things like raising children to fear and love Jesus Christ. That is a miracle. Things like facing pain and suffering and maintaining hope and not giving up and losing heart. Most importantly, perhaps, things like receiving eternal salvation. 
Salvation is a gift from Jesus, and it is something that is only received through faith in Jesus. But a casual encounter will not suffice. A casual encounter will not do. Until this is true of you, you will miss him, though you frequent the crowd. Verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. This moment is all of this woman's worst fears coming to fruition. You can imagine her hearing Jesus trying to figure out who touched him with his disciples, trying to stay hidden, trying to stay hidden until finally she realizes, the text literally says, when she realizes she couldn't stay hidden, and it was a last ditch thing, okay, I'm gonna come in front of everyone, I'm gonna admit that I'm a bleeding woman, I'm gonna admit that I've broken the law by touching Jesus, and I'm just gonna get more shame, more rejection, I'm gonna be cast out. Maybe Jesus will be so mad at me, he'll literally just take the miracle back because I broke the law and I'm bad and I'm shameful and my identity is the sick woman. You can feel her trembling, bracing for rejection. But Jesus in his love has her right where he wants her. She's expecting to be shamed. But Jesus has a plan not only to embrace her and congratulate her for her faith, but to display her for the crowd as an example of true faith. See, so many of us won't come back to Jesus around people. We will not confess with our mouths and come back to Jesus because we're scared there's just going to be more shame. We have to confess our sin. We have to admit what's going on in our hearts and our lives. But Jesus does not have a heart to shame those, no matter how bad their sin, who come back to him. He has a heart not only to embrace them for their faith, but then to display them for people as a trophy of his grace. To say, look what my grace can do. My grace is able to transform anyone who comes to me by faith, no matter how bad, no matter how outcast, no matter how marginalized or hopeless. My grace is able. And Jesus is going to make this woman a powerful, written down in scriptures for us today, example of faith. Verse 48, he says to her, daughter, daughter. This is the only woman given this title by Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament, which I think is amazing. In one moment, this woman is embraced and given a new reality to attach her identity to. She is no longer bleeding outcast woman. She is daughter of the most high king. And I can say this, and as a father who has two girls that wanted boys, um, there's a type of love that a father has for a daughter. You can't explain and you can't know it until you experience it. Jesus wants this woman to know he loves her, that she's not an outcast, that she's not unworthy, that she's not unwanted. He wants her to know that she is his prize that he delights in her, that her faith is something that he treasures and that she herself is worthy. Luke wants us to see a contrast here. See, Jairus stands before Jesus pleading the cause of his daughter, but this woman has no father. So Jesus himself is going to plead her cause. He is going to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. There are massive gospel implications for us here. Jesus prizes outcasts. He loves them. He delights in them. He lifts them up. He heals them. And that's good news for me and you because spiritually speaking, no matter what we have earthly speaking, 
we are all spiritual outcasts without Jesus. We are sinners desperately in need of saving grace. We were unwanted. We were unhealable. We were cast out, not by sickness, far worse, by sin. And Jesus enters in when no one desired us. He gives his life for us and he calls us, he transforms us, sons and daughters of himself. That'll change the way you live your life. He continues on, verse 48, your faith has healed you, go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. I can only imagine the desperation and fear that rushed through Jairus' heart on this news. I can only imagine the questions. Jesus, if we had just not stopped for this woman, I get it, you needed to do it, but my daughter might not have died. But question, do you think Jesus was like, oh, she's dead? Oops. <laughs> Sorry, Jairus, better luck next time, buddy. No, Jesus had a plan in this. Everything that he does has a purpose. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. They were all weeping and mourning. I can only imagine the grief in this moment. I can't, I've, I've known a few people that have lost children, and I know that there's no, I believe, no greater earthly sorrow that could be experienced. But in this time, the official funeral had literally already started. See, back in this day, they did not embalm bodies. They didn't go to great ends. They literally just said, let's start the funeral. And so people were already weeping, already mourning. The official funeral has started. And back then, funerals were noisy affairs. They were not tucked in and neat like the ones we experience today. People weeped, wailed, and literally ripped their clothes. I found out studying this week that the Jewish Mishnah has 39 rules for the ripping of clothes. And that one of them is that women literally have to rip their undergarments first and display them on top of their clothes, which I found very interesting. So you can imagine the scene that Jesus is showing up into here. It's chaos and it's true mourning. And Jesus walks in in verse 52 and he says, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Now, can you imagine? It's like Jesus showing up and saying, uh, uh, ladies, underwear back inside your clothes, please. This girl is not dead. She's just sleeping. Can you imagine me showing up into a funeral of someone you love and saying that sort of thing? It would seem like bitter scorn. It would seem very insensitive, rude. It's the kind of thing that would get me escorted out. There are mourning mothers and fathers in here. You don't come in and say she's napping. We all know she's dead. But Jesus chose his words carefully. He wasn't being insensitive. He wasn't being rude. He was setting up a miracle. Verse 54. He took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. So here's a question. Why not just keep her from dying? A chapter earlier in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, a guy had faith and said, Jesus, you can do it just by saying it. Just speak it. And Jesus marveled at him and healed him from a distance. He could do that here. He could have done that here. So why do it this way? Why allow her to die and then show up and say she's just taking a nap? She's just sleeping. Well, the answer lies in the way Jesus chose to perform this miracle. Jesus says she's napping. He sits down and takes this dead 12-year-old girl by the hand and says two words. 
The first is Talitha. Talitha is a word that literally translated means little girl. But most commentators will tell us that that, is not, that does not get us to the real meaning of the word. It's a word that was far more intimate and dear than this. It's like he's looking at her and he's saying, honey, darling, honey. The second word he spoke was kumi, which means quite simply, get up. It doesn't mean be thou resurrected. He didn't say, I say to thee, arise. There was nothing regal about this. There was nothing apocalyptic about this. This was a simple gesture by Jesus. He takes this little girl by the hand and he says, honey, it's time to get up. Like I would literally wake my daughter up from a nap in the afternoon. See, Jesus wants us to see through this that he can stare into the depths of our most fierce and feared enemy, death itself, which no man can conquer. But to him, he wants us to see that when he has us by the hand, death is nothing more than a nap. We will awake to Jesus in tenderness, holding our hand, resurrecting us. It's not a worthy enemy for him. And with that, we can know that any feeling of death which looms over our life, any feeling of hopelessness, lostness, past mistakes gone by that you feel have ruined your life in an irrecoverable way, they are nothing to Jesus. They are not worthy enemies. Jesus brings resurrection. It's what he does. But here's the thing. He let her die. See, the promise of the Christian faith is not rooted in the fact that when you come to Jesus, he'll protect you from all pain and suffering and life will always go your way. That's not the promise of the gospel. Jesus himself did not experience life in that way, nor did many people in the Bible at all. The promise of the Christian faith is that all suffering and even death itself in Jesus Christ is the only path to resurrection life. It's the promise that on the other side of all sorrow in Jesus is joy. The promise that on the other side of all suffering in Jesus is healing. And the promise that in Jesus, even death itself will lead us to eternal life. It's just a little nap. It is not a worthy adversary. So perhaps you're thinking, good story, pastor, thank you. But how can I know this is true? How can I trust Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. You have to see him beyond just the God who was able to work miracles, and you have to see him as the God who suffered and died on our behalf in love. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, we see Jesus falling at the Father's feet, pleading for his own life, just like Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and pleaded for his daughters. And he's answered with a no. Whereas Jairus was answered with a yes. See, Jesus took on something Jairus wasn't asked to on our behalf. Why? Because he knew that the only way to heal us, to save us, was to go to the cross, absorb the just punishment of God's wrath for our sin, and and give to us in that moment when we come to him through faith all the promises that are due to him through forgiveness and justification, the promises given to the saints who would come to Jesus by faith, acknowledging their need for a savior. It's an act of substitution. He puts himself in our place on the cross so that we who come to him by faith when we are looked at by God would be seen as holy and worthy exactly as Jesus is. We exchange places. And on the cross, we see Jesus like the bleeding woman, bleeding, helpless, rejected, alone. She's had her healing, but he will not have his. He will die. Why? Jesus was taking upon himself 
our sin and our sickness so that he could give us healing. That's why Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. But after all this, Jesus rose from the dead. Three days later, he conquered sin, death, and Satan once and for all, proving that death was not only a nap for him in that moment with that little girl, but in general, he has, death has no power over Jesus. And this proves that he is God. So I am a closet uh, J.R.R. Tolkien fan, uh, Lord of the Rings, closet. Um, I see you, Dustin. Uh, and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, coined a term that it's a word that he made up, and I like it. The word is eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Here's what J.R.R. Tolkien said a eucatastrophe was. It's a sudden, unexpected, happy turn in a story. An unexpected, happy turn in a story. So beautiful and so sweet, it pierces you with a joy that brings tears and makes all sad things untrue. And Tolkien is on record, you can look it up yourself, saying that he himself believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate eucatastrophe. It's the ultimate story, that it's the ultimate act that makes all sad things untrue. It's the ultimate thing that when rightly understood and rightly viewed, seeing that Jesus died for our sins and then rose again, proving that they're defeated under his feet, sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you understand that rightly, you can suffer well. You can know that even if you don't receive your healing in this life, there's one coming, a resurrection that you will awake to Jesus holding your hand. And that kind of understanding will produce joy in your life that makes you a man that has tears in your eyes often. Do you believe this morning? I want to close with two questions. What are you trusting in this morning? Do you have the temptation of Jairus before you to trust that your life is secure and tucked in? That you really don't have any need? See this morning that the only security you can truly have is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That everything you own Every relationship you have, you will one day be without apart from Jesus' resurrecting power and cling to him by faith. Are you tempted by the fate of the bleeding woman that would say, I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. If you knew what I did, if you knew what I've done, if you knew my story, I couldn't be good enough for Jesus. Don't let that keep you this morning from the God who will call you son and daughter. Come to him by faith this morning. My second question is simple. Will you come to him? Don't let crowds keep you from him. Don't let the shame of a past mistake keep you from him. Don't let feelings of unworthiness keep you from him. Come to him for healing, but know that coming to him will require more than you expect, but give more than you expect as well, more than you dreamed. Come to him and surrender for healing this morning in desperation and know that the intentional touch, the desperate touch at Jesus' feet has healing power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account. Thank you for what we read here of two people that had faith, that chose to direct their desperation away from the things of this world and towards you. Thank you that they found their healing. Help us to see this morning that there is healing in the name of Jesus. That though death should take our physical life, we will rise again with you. That is the hope of Christianity. 
Allow us who are, have the feeling of death looming over our lives this morning to hear you say, Talitha Kumi, arise, little one. Take heart, take faith, trust in my graciousness. And let Story City be a church that is full of people that are not here for a casual encounter with Jesus, just to be a part of the crowd, but who would daily come to you, who would daily fall at your feet and find healing and resurrection power for all of their needs. It's in Jesus' name, amen.